Hi, this is Teresa de Grobois, and I'm so excited to be coming to you on the World of Speakers podcast, where we're talking about everything from influence to happiness to how to impactfully step into the life of your dreams. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. All right, we are here back with another episode of The World of Speakers. And true to its name, we are speaking with Teresa de Grabo. De Graba? De Grabo. De Groba. Yeah. <laughs> One more time for us. De Grobois. De Grobois. There we go. I feel that came off nicely that last time. She's speaking to us from Costa Rica, which is part of this world. And Teresa is not only the chair of the Evolutionary Business Council, but she's a number one international bestseller of her book, Mass Influence. And today we're going to get to know her. We're going to pick your brain about how you know you can help people from a tactical speaking standpoint. And then we're going to learn about this mass influence and how you've used the stage to monetize your message and create these cool communities all over, well, all over, but it sounds like you're starting some cool stuff there in Costa Rica. But let's dive into it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. And I just love the fact that you are in Costa Rica because I've visited there a few times. That's how I hone in on my Espanol communication. And uh, what a great country with great people. Now, do you live there all the time or is it part of the year? I am a nomad. I like to say enlightened nomad. I live in Canada in the summer. I'm Canadian. And then I come down here and commute from here in the winter. But of course, like a lot of speakers, we're all always traveling. So it's just home base six months of the year. Very cool. Well, let's get into this nomadness and find out where the nomadness started. Were you a nomad as a kid? And how did you sort of find yourself to this nomad lifestyle of speaking? Oh, you know, I love that. I, you know, I always wanted to be a nomad as a kid, although we were a little bit. We used to live um, in northern Canada and we'd spend every summer in a cabin. In fact, a remote backwoods cabin. We'd go in by boat every year. So, you know, I, I was migratory as a child, <laughs> but it wasn't what nor- most people normally think of. You know, we went from rural setting to beyond rural and, you know, ultimately backwoods. Now, were your parents hippies? You know, they predated the hippie era, my folks. <laughs> okay. You know, because I'm actually the youngest of a really big family. So even though I was born in the 60s, my parents were quite a bit older than me. I, um, my eldest siblings were hippies, though. They were 16, uh, 15 years older than me. And so they really indoctrinated me in that whole hippie era. Now, when you say big, are you talking like 12 to 15 or 10 and under? Sorry, big family, you mean? I, yeah, yeah. I'm the youngest of nine kids. Okay, right there on the yeah, brink. That's, yeah. that's huge. That's, that's a big family. Yeah. Well, very cool. Now, from out of those nine kids, how many have taken and adopted this nomad lifestyle? Is it, you know, are there other brothers and sisters that somewhat have similar paths or has everybody just gone different ways? Um, you know, it's a fascinating question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> a lot of my siblings do like to travel, actually. Some of us have scattered to the winds. I had a sister who lived in Germany for many years. She's just come back and is now on the East Coast of Canada. One of my uh, sisters is married to an Air Canada pilot, so they travel all over. Right. I'm quite jealous, actually. They're, every few months, they're going somewhere different. Very cool. And, uh, and yet, some of my siblings have just sort of stuck uh, close to home. A lot of them are in the central Ontario area now, it's sort of the Toronto and north. 
Now, you know, you've got this sort of nomadic upbringing, but how did you kind of get into this mass influence? And maybe, you know, we'll take a couple steps back and a couple steps forward, but to be a number one international bestseller, that's no joke. And this concept of mass influence, maybe you can help share with our listeners, you know, what that means, what got you to that point, And are you all about helping people to gain influence? Shed some light on that for us. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to tell you it was this beautiful linear path that all made sense. <laughs> um, and the reality is, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's, um, you know, and I think it's kind of how they say fish don't know what water is. Often we don't know what we're good at until other people really start pointing it out to us. I like that. And for me, the seeds of really having influence become a passion of mine were probably sown in those early years you know, out in the backwoods with my older siblings. Because of course, when when you're the youngest and your family is all you got, importance becomes a pretty important conversation to you. You know, at least for me, um, I had a lot of inner dialogue, self-sabotage, whatever you want to call it around, I'm too small to play with the big kids, you know, because I was often getting left behind or, you know, the older kids wouldn't want me tagging along. And that actually created in me a real drive to look at okay, what makes somebody worthy of being in a group? In fact, not only being in a group, but of actually leading a group, because I never had the opportunity to lead as the youngest. And that had me fascinated with the whole topic. And, you know, like a lot of youngest siblings, I became an overachiever, which is pretty common for youngest kids of, of big families, and continued to pursue opportunities. You know, I grew up through uh, Canada's oil and gas sector, lived in um, Alberta for many years, led numerous major change initiatives without ever realizing that what I was doing was I was learning about influence. Hmm. And it wasn't until I decided to leave the whole oil and gas sector behind, you know, I did that now for something completely different. Uh, I uh, left, started a charity, wrote three books, very quickly put all three on the bestseller list. I was using them to raise money for the charity. And um, then two very remarkable things happened. The first was I very quickly realized that I didn't enjoy running a charity and I didn't enjoy being a children's author. And the second was people started coming at me in droves saying, Teresa, three number one bestsellers in eight months. How the heck did you do that? And would you show me how? And so I started mentoring and coaching all these people and really understanding what creates word of mouth epidemic, what creates influence. And that actually evolved into a brand, which really had me moving forward as someone who helps others understand how to lead their own movements. Wow. And it all started with a new word I'm going to make up. We'll see what you think about it. Sibling fluence. I'm not sure. Sibling fluence or sibling, sibling influence, <laughs> right? Sibling fluence. Yeah, there's, there's a word there somewhere. It's pretty good. So let's decide on this real quick. So sibling plus influence. Sibling influence. <laughs> subinfluence and it's probably subliminal right so you've got you've got sibling you have subliminal and you have influence and it's subliminal <laughs> subliminalness okay uh, and it's interesting because you that's something that for those people who do have brothers and sisters there is this constant sort of you know fighting for attention not only among the, the siblings but among the parents and being a youngest child myself of you know having an older brother an older sister. Yeah. We, I mean, 
I'm an overachiever. I'm also a ginger. And those things combined make it very dangerous. It's a ginger achiever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, and it's not just sublinfluence. Sublim- <laughs> Let me try another word. Right? Because, you know, one of the things we all know is, you know, the further you are from home, the smarter people think you are. Right? Ooh, I like and, that. Yeah. And we all know that, right? Because, you know, I, like literally I have a brother who is so genius. He designs control systems for nuclear actors. He's been on loan from the Canadian government to the government of Austria. Like he's that top of his field. Right. But my inner dialogue around him is always still things like, wow, do they know he used to stick forks in the toaster? (laughs) Cause he's my brother. And you know, it's not just our siblings, but the people we're very familiar with, we tend to have an inner dialogue around, could someone close to me, could someone like me, really be important and influential because it's a reflection of our own belief that we're not that important or influential right and so it, what it really comes down to is we got to start challenging our own beliefs about the impact we can have in the world and when we can see ourselves as important and influential it's a lot easier to see others around us as the same hmm that's an interesting concept and it what makes me think about the distance from your family being smarter, you also are talking about the distance from yourself. If you really can stand outside of yourself and not think of the forks that you stuck in places that you shouldn't, (laughs) then sort of this outside persona, other people have this vision. It's a reality of what you look like to them. And I'm assuming that this whole mass influence is realizing that and then translating it and leveraging it to basically create a whole new family, uh, you know, outside of your family, right? Because it's influence is really about building this community and the people that drove to you in numbers sort of had this organic flow where you became a bigger family. Yeah, it's very true. Influence really is all about relationships. And that's something a lot of people often don't think about, you know, but when you think about what a word of mouth epidemic is, a word of mouth epidemic is just 200 influential people all talking about you or your book or your project all at the same time. Mm. And that starts with them liking you and admiring you and wanting to talk about your work, a.k.a. a relationship. And that's what a lot of people miss in the world of influence. Yeah, influence and ship. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, there's a lot of opportunity for words out there. You're like me. You love inventing new words. That's so fun. Yeah, I had somebody on the show the other day, and she tweeted me. She said, you are the best interviewer and the worst word maker upper. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. So talk to us about how speaking or sort of being in front of people has been part of this, because it sounds like you wrote the books, people came into you, you helped them understand the word of mouth. Then did you start sort of speaking more on it? And how did the stage help to propel where you were to where you are now? Well, the stage is an amazing place to propel anyone's influence, right? Because it involves social proof. And, you know, a lot of us don't think about this, but we all have influence. Anytime someone likes and trusts you enough that they'll take action based on your word, then you have influence, Mass influence then is when a lot of people like and trust you enough to take action on your word. And that requires social proof. Anytime people feel like, ah, other people trust them, so I should, then that's where influence starts to grow. Influence starts to magnify. In fact, it can be quite exponential as the social proof gets bigger. So anytime you're doing something that is not in a one-on-one conversation, but is a one-to-many conversation, 
social proof starts to become inferred and influence goes up exponentially. So radio show, stage, writing a book, having a podcast, any of those things that are one-to-many conversation can really massively improve your influence and your ability to have impact in the world. So you are, I'm assuming, a student of your own teaching, right? And you're now, here's a question. Is it the same influence with sort of the smaller numbers and it just actually is amplified and multiplied? But that's kind of an interesting concept to where we all have influence. And I love that. Mm-hmm. And as the more people see and hear and follow and then other people see and hear that people are following you and it sort of becomes this this massive influence yeah. at the root. Is it still the same influence that you had with the small group just multiplied or do things really change and become more dynamic as the social proof increases? Well, yes and no. And let me explain that a little bit. Yes, it is that linear in some respects. And it's also messy. Like mm. life is messy. And, you know, so we can talk about it like it's this neat and tidy linear thing. And the reality is, especially being on stage, as you give your message, you get real-time feedback. And what happens for a lot of speakers is that's why the stage is such a beautiful place to hone your message. Because as you see people's reactions, as you see whether things are landing, as you see whether they're shifting and moving, your message matures and your ability to communicate it matures. So on the one hand, yes, it's social proof. On the other hand, your message is also evolving through the process of you becoming more influential. And as your message evolves, it actually becomes more impactful and more impactful gathers more social proof and more social proof has you actually become more influential. So it becomes this beautiful self-propelling, self-feeding cycle. And although it sounds a little linear, it can be a bit messy. And the messiness of it is lovely because that brings in the whole humanity of it all. I love this. So you brought me back to college studying economics and sort of economic theory. And I'm imagining these different graphs where you have these different inputs and these outputs. And as either a business or uh, something that you're tracking changes, there are these factors that multiply and the algorithms get more complex or messy. And then it does create this sort of, you know, sometimes that hockey stick where it goes up. And you had mentioned exponential. And I think that's an interesting concept that influence is linear with exponential tendencies if social proof is in that algorithm. Yeah, and and really it's... um you know, there comes a point where you can't figure out how things happened anymore. You know? <laughs> and, um, you know, because like, for example, when I launched my book, I mean, what a beautiful miracle that was, you know, and truly, I'm, I'm humbled by that was the gift the Evolutionary Business Council gave me, right? Because, of course, I run this large organization of people who are really committed to creating change in the world. And we put the pre-sale page up for my book, we weren't even finished testing and making sure everything was right. And word got out to some of the members and they started shouting it out and spreading word. And that went with such wildfire, like talk about feeling vulnerable because we're like, oh my gosh, are there even typos on the page? Because we haven't even checked it yet. <laughs> right. And the book was hitting number one bestseller within the hour. And by the next day, it was at number one in seven countries. Wow. Now, here's the interesting thing. One of those countries was Italy. We don't even have members in Italy. Hmm. I have no idea how we hit number one on the bestseller list in Italy to this day. I have no idea how that happened. 
Yeah, the network effect. But yeah. I, I love this concept. At a certain point, you don't realize how things happen. And that's because you're caught up in the moment, you know, as you're sort of yeah. in the middle of this algorithm. It's like a real life algorithm that you can't figure out. But that's what's exciting, because if you keep the inputs, things start happening. Yeah. And really, at the most basic level, a word of mouth epidemic is a gift that the people you're in relationship give back to you for all the times you've given to them. Mm. That's really what it turns out to, right? And because it is, you know, there's a term coined by Dr. Shonda Perrin, who's, um, you know, one of our top communications experts in North America. She talks about cycles of reciprocity, and that's how people build relationships, right? They, you know, at, at, a, at a friend level, it might be, you know, I help you out when you're sick. Um, you pick me up uh, to, to give me a lift somewhere when my car is broken, and it, it's not based on scorekeeping. It's more based on this notion that we care about each other, we help each other. And influential people do the same thing. They engage in cycles of reciprocity, but they do it a little bit differently. When you look at how highly influential people operate, their cycle of reciprocity is based on giving influence to each other. They endorse each other. They shout each other's work, work out. They're often in, interviewing each other on their shows. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. Yeah, right, right. They're praising each other from the rooftops. They're nominating each other for awards because influential people treat influence almost like it's a currency, except with influence, the more you spend it, the more you have. Bam. That's the subject for your next book. Absolutely. <laughs> influence as currency. Yeah, the economy of influence. It's really the first economy, right? Yeah. Because before we ever invented money on this planet, influence was in fact the currency that was being traded. That's why great houses were having their children marry each other and things like that, because they understood that relationships created influence and the giving of you know, influence and power to each other increase the influence and power of the person doing the giving. I love this concept because it's it's there and it's trackable and it's visual and it's visceral and it's simple. It's relationships at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. So let's dive into some tactics of influence when it comes to speaking. And I'm sure you are full of all kinds of tactics, but what would be the highest value, most specific items or elements or tips or tricks that you could share with our listeners of when you're on that stage and you now have the ability to communicate your influence, what are some of the things that you really wish people would do more to up their influence game? Well, we've all seen the basic level happening, right? You get on a stage in someone else's room, you know, of course, the first thing the speaker needs to do is give influence to the event host. Mm. You know, you always shout out and edify the event host. You see speakers doing this all the time, right? The advanced level of that is to really be aware and present to who in the room also deserves your praise from stage. How do you work them into the, the content of what you're talking about? How do you big them up? Um, how do you use, use examples that have them be raised up in the eyes of the other people in the audience? That's actually the black belt level, black belt level of influence when you're speaking on stage. I love that. Praise from the stage. Mm -hmm. Big them up. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Those are good. There's your next book after that is Praise from the Stage. Black belt <laughs> level influence edification. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I, no, I think that's great. And I know a lot of people might get the microphone and say, okay, great. That's great to be here. Thank you. But 
this is a very tactical uh, sharing your influence for the person of influence who got you to be able to share your influence and then going inception influence into the audience and being relevant for those people to big them up. I dig that. Yeah. And it's all very authentic, right? In other words, you know, there's, there's people out there listening. I know, cause I've met you who are saying right now, Oh, that's so smarmy that you would just big people up for the sake of bigging them up. And I want you to cancel clear that cancel clear because you only do it. You only do it for people you authentically deeply respect and admire. In other words, there's enough influential people out there that, that you can praise you never have to praise or endorse someone that you don't authentically like. And the reason for that is pretty evident, right? We all have, you know, inner dialogue, inner thoughts, authenticity. You know, there's a lot of different definitions out there, but mine is simply, authenticity is simply your inside voice saying the same thing as your outside voice. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and we've always run into those scenarios where we know somebody's thinking something different than what they're saying. We can tell. Right. And people can tell the same with you. If you're saying, oh, my God, this guy is awesome. And what you're really thinking is, get me out of here. This guy is such a jerk. It's going to come across. It comes across. Right. So you're not doing that person any favors by falsely praising them. That's why, in fact, I, you know, I often get asked to do 30, 40 interviews a month. I turn about a quarter of them down because I don't feel like I could authentically shout that show out or praise that show host. I mean, I would come on your show any day of the week, Ryan, because I love what you teach and I love what you stand for. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Look at you bigging me up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the truth. It's so it's easy to say and people can tell I'm authentic, right? And I would never put myself in, in a position of having to edify a host if I didn't honestly believe what was coming out of my mouth, because your listeners would spot it a mile away, as would anyone listening. Yeah. As classically said by someone very smart, how do I tell them there's, I have no in a monologue? Well, <laughs> <laughs> awesome powers reference for you. I always go back to Austin in, in times of need. Okay. So that's <laughs> the inside voice matches the outside voice. And, you know, Nick Morgan's been on the show and, and I've done some coaching with him and he talks a lot about, you know, the nonverbal communication. So even if you are edifying the words and you think that you are fooling people, oh, I'm so happy to be here. You've got 4,000 microcosms happening on your face that are communicating otherwise, if that's yeah. really what your inside voice is. Yeah, absolutely. And even beyond nonverbal communication that's physical there's now research that shows that there is energetic energy that people can feel because deaf people can or blind people can pick it up. Like without wow. visual cues or without auditory cues, people can pick up when there's a disconnect in your energy. So we, we are actually having a growing body of research that shows there is a sixth sense there that is energetic and people do tune into it and we've tried to explain it as visual or auditory, but in fact it is really there and people can sense it. Wow. That's interesting. All right. So you've edified them on the stage. One of the things I like to sh you know pull out of people are what you do for an intro or if there's any tricks for intro, some people, you know, engage the audience, some people use humor, but I'm a big believer that people will remember the beginning of your speech and the end of your speech, not so much in the middle, so do you have any advice for people on how to start or things that really work for you that energize the crowd right out the gates? Well, I'm a huge fan of accelerated learning. And for those who don't know what accelerated learning is, it's just a body of science that was developed by a Bulgarian scientist in the 1960s, Georgi Lazanov, if you want to Google his work. And it basically says that energy equals learning. 
So the more you get your audience to engage, to raise their hands, to call and repeat, to share with a neighbor, the more they're going to retain what you say. In fact, if you just get up there and do a keynote, they'll only walk away with 12% of what you say. If you get them engaged, laughing, raising their hands, whatever it is, they'll walk out of the room retaining 98% or 96% rather of what you've said. Wow. And so, yeah, it's a huge difference. So my biggest piece of advice would be to learn the, the premises of accelerated learning and bring them into your speaking, whether you're keynoting or whether you're training, you can still use accelerated learning. And so on that note, I always open with a question and I always make it a relevant question to what we're talking about or what's here in the room right now. So if what's here in the room right now is there's big upset because there's a snowstorm outside and everybody's late, I just ask the audience, how many of you had trouble getting, getting here? How many of you found that you were amazed at how easily you got here in spite of what's going on outside? And whatever you ask, you always ask the opposite so that everybody in the room gets to raise their hand. So two polar opposite questions, but they all get to raise their hand. And if possible, the question should show empathy or engagement with what is about to happen. And I always find that if you can have them at that point, then they stay with you because now they're like, oh, wow, she gets us, right? And, you know, some people would have speakers start with what they would call an earn the right. You know, you, you give some personal story that shows that you can really empathize with your audience and um, that, that you have the right to be up there with them. It's not so much about credentials. It's more about what you've lived through. And that is not a bad idea. At the same time, I've generally found that if you can simply walk out on stage and be who they need you to be, someone who deeply gets them and who is there to be deeply of service, and every pore in your being exudes that energy that I am here all for you and anything going on with me doesn't matter right now. I'm all about you. So I'm not nervous because nervous is all about me. I'm simply here of service. Then it doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth. You will have them from the very first word. Okay, so this is some good stuff here. I'm taking some notes. And are you a fan of Snoop Dogg? I am. <laughs> okay, okay. So John Bates, good friend of mine, amazing speaker. He talks with uh, you know everybody from Johnson Johnson to NASA and, and helps with their you know executive communication. He refers to Snoop Dogg when it comes back to this, and he says, you know, Snoop Dogg raps in one of his raps. Don't be nervous. Be in their service. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. And that's it. And, you know, he talks about how a lot of people are nervous because they're selfish. Yeah. Because they don't want to get sweaty armpits. They don't want to sound nervous. When if you flip it, you're like, I don't care what I look like. Every single pore on the inside is every single pore on the outside. Maybe that's why I sweat so much on stage is because I'm authentic enough to do the inside voice, which you said every pore inside of you to pour out. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And that deserves some clarification because it's not selfish from the standpoint you're a bad person. Right. Right. It's selfish from the standpoint that you're really focusing on you. Yeah. And yeah. your fear of not looking bad. And the reality is, no matter what you do on stage, there may be moments you look bad. There's going to be somebody in the audience who judges you because that's their inner dialogue. And if you make that important, as opposed to really being of service to that audience, if you make 100% of your energy around how can I help you even though I'm imperfect, even though I'm not worthy to be up here, even though I'm too small to play with the big kids, whatever your inner dialogue is that's taking you out in that moment, 
even though all those things may be true, and I'm not saying they are true, but surrender to the possibility and then don't sweat them. You simply say, how can I be 100% of service to this audience? How can I really help you in this moment? Then nothing will be off in your energy and you will have them with every word you say. Yeah. What's so cool about that kind of advice is that it is a non-technical technical, right? It's like so many people are looking for these, what what exactly do I say or what can I exactly do? And this is just like an aura of service that if you bring, you bring the energy and you know people will not only learn more, but listen intently and sort of feel that energy that you're giving off. Yeah. You know, so many of us worry so much about being perfect. And the reality is, when you worry so much about being perfect on stage, you don't give your audience the permission to be human either, right? Whereas if you role model that maybe imperfect's okay, maybe life is messy and maybe I can be a little messy up here and maybe it doesn't matter because maybe we're all just doing the best we can and messy's okay. When you role model that instead, your audience just falls in love with you. Yeah, and then it's really just more about your energy than it is your exact words. And people leave with this experience that they, you know, that they then want to continue to talk about and spread around. Yeah. And one thing, one thing I want to share with everybody about this looking good on stage. If you have ever been on stage and asked people to take pictures of you or have had professional photographers, it is nearly impossible to get a good picture because like, if you think about it every single moment, you're like, (laughs) so if you just admit the fact that, you know, you're not going to necessarily look good, but your energy can sort of shine through that. Then that's what I think is amazing about speaking. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, you know, what color, what anything is really about that message that you're transferring that the power lies within. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's very much about who you're being far more than what you're saying. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, you know, how you take this energy and how in the real world do you translate that to, you know, monetizing your message or capitalizing on your influence to either create a lifestyle or to help give back or to create change and, and you know, make people all onto one mission? How do you, from a tactical standpoint, you know, get started in this industry? Or if you're in this industry, how do you move from 1,000 person crowd to 5,000 person crowd? Or does it even matter? I mean, what are your thoughts on using the stage to essentially make a career out of it or increase your influence to where you have control over what it is that you're doing, when you're doing it and how you're doing it. Well, you start with getting really good at a 20 person crowd. Okay, good. Because the reality is, you know, this is an art form. It's almost like learning a new sport. And within the realm that we might call being a professional speaker, there are several different sports within that realm. It's almost like the difference between, um, you know, soccer and football or, or basketball, right? They're all professional sports. You have to be a, uh, an amazing athlete for all of them, but the rules are a little bit different and how the game is played is a little bit different, right? So the first thing you got to recognize is you've got to figure out, A, what your message is and B, who your audience is, and then figure out the model that works for that. You know, for example, if your audience is entrepreneurs, you're not a feed speaker. There are very few entrepreneurial stages that will pay you to come in and speak. Yeah. But far more lucrative in that realm is what we would call selling from the stage. Or, you know, so you come in, you waive your fee. I'm not saying you don't speak for free, but you waive your fee 
And then they give you the right to sell training programs in the room. And if you've got high quality programs that you can demonstrate achieve good results, then you can make actually a lot more money than you would have made having charged a fee. Right. And so it, it all comes down to designing a model that works for where in the speaking industry you belong. So Tim Ferriss always talks about lifestyle design. So I'm liking this concept of speaker lifestyle design and that it's not as straightforward as putting a square peg into a square hole. There's different size pegs and different size holes and they all have sort of, you know, money coming out of different places. So I think that that's an interesting concept. What would you break down the maybe like if you had to sort of segment them into two or three different areas? what would that look like? And maybe what is a good training path for that? So, you know, the 20 and under audience, and is it really a size that depends? Or is it just go back to, I'm going back on this because you just first said it's about your message and it's about your audience. So that's really what determines it all. It doesn't matter what the size is of the audience. It's really, it doesn't. And, you know, it starts with knowing what problem do you solve and for who? I love that. I, I tell people all the time that I don't care what they do. I only care about the problem that they solve. And I'm going to be interested yeah. if it's a problem that I have. So I, I love that you're echoing that. Yeah. And, you know, really, when you think about, you know, what, what motivates people to buy, it's usually one of two things. They're either trying to solve a problem in their life or there's something they just really, really want. Hmm. So in the speaking world, we're most often trying to solve a problem for someone. And so that business model looks like one thing right? Where actually there's a number of different business models in that realm. But there is also a realm of speaking where we're just offering something people really, really want, right? Like chocolate would be an example of that, right? So if you're doing getaway retreats that are like pamper yourself retreats, you might not be solving any problem in someone's life. You might just be marketing to something people really, really want. I affectionately call that realm marketing to tourists. Because if, for example, what you do would live on TripAdvisor, then you might be in that realm. You might not be solving any problem for anyone. You're just in the way of stuff people really, really desire, Mm. like a great experience, a great vacation. So that's one realm of speaking. The bigger realm of speaking, though, tends to be we're solving a problem for a specific group of people. And I would say 80 to 90% of the speaking industry lives in that realm. And if so, then the first thing that will dictate what your model should be is who's your audience. Because if the problem you're solving is for corporate America, for example, A, do they know they have the problem? If they don't know they have that problem, they're never going to hire you unless you can demonstrate that there's a real problem that's costing them money and you can save them money by doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the realm of feed speaking. Like big corporations will bring you in and pay a fee. Sometimes big events, like big association events, will will hire feed feed speakers. That actually only represents about 20% of the industry, though. So if you're not in the realm of a corporation would hire me, you're more likely going to be setting up a business model that looks like I sell stuff when I speak. And in that case, you're probably offering some kind of advanced retreat, advanced online program, advanced content where you're going out and you're speaking at events that, you know, will allow you to sell from the stage in exchange for you waiving your speaker fee. 
And then you enroll 10 to 20% of the room in coming in and doing the more advanced content. So that might be something like I'm teaching entrepreneurs how to market, or I'm teaching people how to live a healthier lifestyle, or I'm working with um, cancer survivors to help them get their life back. If you have a definable group and you're addressing a definable problem, especially one that you can save them money by defining the problem, because you know if they can have a direct correlation in their mind to, if I buy this thing, I will save money or make money, then it's not going to be difficult for you to sell your programs when you're speaking. Mm. And I would assume that you kind of have to know what those programs are. The technology has to be set up. They have to be vetted. It has to be easily accessible. So there's a lot of background work to do to sell from the stage. That's Not really. No, okay. And you'd think that, right? Most people think that, and that's actually what stops them from starting. Well, let's solve this problem right now. Let's shake the globe a little bit. The thing I love about the speaking industry is you can sell stuff before you ever build it. Bam. All it requires is honesty and transparency that that's what you're doing. And so what that looks like is you give a killer speech and uh, or let's, let's not use the word killer. That's negative. You give an enlivening speech. <laughs> <laughs> an enlightening speech, yes. An, an enlightening speech and the audience is in love with you and they want more. And, you know, in any given audience, it's a pretty good bet that at least 10% of them want to go further with you. That's pretty normal if you're a good speaker. And you stand up there and say, I've had a lot of requests, and I've been thinking about creating some advanced content on blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's an advanced retreat. Maybe it's a mentorship program. Maybe it's an online content delivery program. But you say it's blah, 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 whatever. You, you define what it is. And then you say... This is going to retail for, I'm going to make numbers up, it's going to retail for $3,000. I am, however, looking for a test group of students. If you're willing to be part of the test group, you can buy it now for only $1,000, and I will design the program around your specific needs. What that looks like is I'm going to survey you about specific elements of this particular challenge you're facing. I'm going to see what your support you need, and I'm going to provide it or acquire it to ensure you get it. I love that. Now you define roughly what this is going to look like. Like you might say this involves a group mentorship call once a month. You'll also get one-on-one coaching from me, X amount. You'll also have access to online content that we'll be building as we go, right? So you can define what all the pieces are that make it worth that much value. But it is very possible as long as you don't lie, like you got to be open and transparent about it, but it is very possible. And in fact, I recommend to speakers, if you're designing a new program, do it that way, go out and sell it and then build it. Because first of all, if you don't sell it first, you don't even know if anybody wants it. Right. If nobody wants it, it's a waste of time to build it. You've wasted a lot of effort. But secondly, doing it that way, you want to build up a test group of 20 or 30 students so that as you're designing it, you're designing it around real people, it's going to be a lot more solid, a lot more powerful content. Yeah, and then those 20 people are going to be your biggest fans to create a word of mouth epidemic about how you help them with a course that directly solved the problem that they had. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention awesome video testimonials to put up on your website when you're selling the course in the future. Yeah, that's a very um, unlike Field of Dreams concept, right? Don't build it and assume that they're going to come. Get them in the audience and then get them to come <laughs> and then build it. Yeah, get the people, then build it. Yeah. You know, and I believe any kind of, anytime you can do a business model where you sell something and then build it, 
it's way less risk as a business owner, which is why I love this whole world of infopreneur, you know, even with the intentional community that we're building down in Costa Rica, because, you know, we were talking about me being nomadic, the a number of members of the Evolutionary Business Council are building a community down here. We came up with a paradigm of let's sell and then build. So we're actually selling, you know, fractional ownership and, you know, people can own a week of the retreat center, for example, as well as a week of the guest uh, houses. We're doing all that beforehand and then we're building it. And we're just being transparent and honest with people about that. That's why it's a rock and deal because it's like, nope, there's nothing physical you can see right now. First we sell it, then we build it. Right. What a great concept. And what's empowering about that for people who are wanting to monetize their message is that it takes the pressure off of creating the whole product before you get up there on stage. And like you alluded to before, speaking is really that real-time feedback. And if people are audibly going, ooh, and ah, and they're laughing, and they're engaged, and they stick around afterwards, and they're asking particular questions, that's really just crowdsourcing what they want to then deliver it to them. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, I've heard of some, of a new restaurant chain, which I won't name because I don't remember, but I'm not going to tell you that, even though I just did. Uh, the idea is that you pre-register with them, whether it's with your DNA or some sort of, you know, chemical biomarkers, and you go to the restaurant and based on your genes, based on your sort of their guess at your taste buds, you don't have to order. They're going to deliver what your body type says you might like. I mean, it's crazy, right? But wow, it, that's cool. it's the same kind of concept to we're really getting into this customized, tailored world where people do want to feel that individual touch. And I, I love that concept of sell it, then build it. Yeah, it's a lot lower risk. And it's actually a far more powerful place for speakers and trainers to be, you know. Yeah. At the very basic level of this model, though, you know, at the very least, if you're speaking, if you've got a book, you can be selling your book on stage. Now, books are more of a marketing piece than they are a moneymaker because you only make 20 bucks every time you sell a book. But that having said, you know, getting more of your books out there can be a real support to having more people hire you and bring you in to speak down the road. So for somebody who wrote three books that were bestsellers within eight months and then went on to another international bestseller <laughs> crushing it, what is the real high level you have? You have two minutes to give people the best advice about writing a book. What would you, what would you tell them? Well, you know, I actually teach um, a program on this called How to Become a Bestselling Author because I find a lot of people get stopped before they even start. You know, the first thing you want to do, and I talk to a lot of experts in the industry talk about this, is I'd recommend blogging your book. You know, do seven minutes a day, write one um, short bit a day. And uh, I always start with students doing an exercise and getting a really good book outline because, you know, each chapter has different elements that it'd be really good to have in it. But each one of those elements, like if you take a chapter and it's got four elements, each one of those could just be a, a blog post or, or uh, seven minutes of writing every day and then you're done that piece, right? Yeah. So if you can chunk it down into little pieces, it's a lot quicker and a lot easier to get your book written. And then similarly, a launch, you know, a launch is just a do list of about 100 things. And that might sound overwhelming when you first approach it, but if you can chunk it down into step by step, Here's how I do each piece. I got to make sure my listings are right. I got to make sure my categories are right. I got to set up that a lot of people are talking about the book all at the same time. So that's uh, different relationships I've got to build or capitalize on. When you chunk it down into that, it's not nearly as hard as you might think it is. 
So one thing I heard you say, which actually might change the trajectory of a phrase that I will say for the rest of my life, and I don't know if you omitted a word on purpose or it's because you're Canadian or because you're in Costa Rica. Maybe we just missed it, but you (laughs) referred to what people know of as the to-do list. You removed a word and you called it the do list. Did you realize that? Is that on purpose? Is that what you say? It was on purpose. You know, I really think action is the thing that makes the difference between someone who's highly successful and action happens in the present. So there's no, take the two out of it. It's just the do list. Yeah. I love that. Just go do it. The do list. I, I, yeah. And I, I'm a big to-do list kind of guy, but I think for the rest of my life, the, the long-lasting impact, among other things that, that have happened in this moment in time, is that I will forever make a commitment to not refer to the to-do list as the to-do list. The to-do list is the do list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes a huge difference, you know. Because ultimately, you know, having a powerful life is about stepping into your dreams. You know, when you find that thing that really lights you up, that thing to be of service to others, I don't mean your dream to own a nice sports car. I mean your dream of how do you really have an impact on the world, right? Because believe it or not, Aristotle was the first person who ever spoke about this. He talked about the different types of happiness in the world. And he talked about hedonistic happiness. That's like the happiness that comes in the moment from pursuits of the flesh. And it's an appropriate form of happiness, you know, like give me a good piece of pumpkin pie and I am hedonistically happy, you know? (laughs) And yet he also talked about eudaimonia and eudaimonia is the ongoing state of happiness that comes when we know we're of deep contribution to our families, to our community, to the world at large. And unlike hedaimonia or hedonistic happiness, eudaimonia is very, heart-centered, permanent, and lasting. And when we can step into that realm of hedemonia, we're really stepping into the realm of what are our dreams to be a contribution to the world. So one of the most selfish things you can ever do is find that thing that really lights you up where you're a deep, deep contribution to others. Because research is now showing you'll not only be happier when you find it, you'll actually live longer and you'll be a lot healthier too. Wow. Well, that is the way to end an amazing episode here on the World of Speakers. I'm inspired. I forever now have a new term of the, of the I almost said it, I almost messed up, the do list. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's not forget sub-influence. <laughs> oh, sub yes. Sub-influence. <laughs> yes, sub-influence. We'll figure this out and we'll tweet it out and we'll get that out there into the world. But, you know, think about the influence that you have to attain as a, as a child, as a sibling, or if you have kids, think about that and know that that can leverage you to end up creating an amazing person like you, Teresa, and all these other amazing change makers that you're associating yourself with. And I'm excited to be in the company and I'm going to come visit you in Costa Rica. That's going to be on my do list here. Absolutely. Definitely. I, I'm interested in this mindful community that is really just focused on creating a positive environment. So super cool. I just want to thank you again for being on and we'll definitely stay in touch for all of you listeners. I want you to check out what Teresa has going on. Sounds like she's got amazing programs and Teresa, where would you send them if you were going to send them somewhere online? Uh, Come check out our council. Evolutionary business council is at ebcouncil.com. Excellent. So check that out. And if you like this show, which you are, if your inside voice is saying, I love the show, then your outside voice needs to go leave a review on iTunes That would be great. And the thanks to our sponsors, Speaker Hub, for helping us to to get this and get all these amazing people together. We will see you 
again on these other shows and check out past shows, all this good stuff, Sibling Influence, and uh, don't forget to big people up and sell it before you buy it. There you go, everybody. Teresa, thanks so much and enjoy the howler monkeys. Tell the ones in the trees I say hi. <laughs> it was a total pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. You have a great day and uh, adios. Hasta luego. Hasta bye bye.